Good morning, everybody. You've no idea how reassuring it is to see that. because You will see that uh, the uh, displays are quite important to the message uh, that I've brought this morning. Anyhow, we are starting a new series. Uh, we had, obviously, a series on the Psalms of David. And as you can see here, the plan is to have several talks on the theme of witnessing for Christ. Uh, and the purpose of this is to prepare our hearts at this stage so that by early next year, in January or so, we are hoping some house groups might follow a study in how to witness a bit more so that by about February, March, we will conduct an evangelistic effort in the church uh, using something such as Evangelism Explored. And as a church, we will seek to reach people and bring them in, and not bring them into the church, but bring them to Christ through the messages. So this is part of a process. But it is emphasizing what, David, thank you very much for sharing with us, your witness to Christ, but that each of us has a light, a testimony, who knows Jesus, and we seek to understand how best to share that light. Uh, you'll see that the series looks at um, various aspects. Next week, we'll have a little break. The Harvest Service and Compassion UK will be sharing the ministry that they undertake across the world for children growing up uh, to discover Jesus. Then a series of several ones. Next week, Barry, uh, uh, Barry will be covering Barry. Uh, um, these are the wrong way around, actually, I think. Uh, I think it's the 7th of November, Barry will cover barriers to witness. I'll change this, but they'll be the topics covered, and I hope you've got the idea. Today, as you can see, we're going to cover a very interesting topic. How to spread the gospel to the whole world. And so I'm going to demonstrate, I hope to you, how the gospel spreads to the entire world and how you can do it. Uh, so uh, no small challenges this morning, I should hope. There was a very famous American evangelist called Billy Sunday. And he would preach to packed crowds in theaters and um, sports stadiums. And um, he would urge them to come to Christ, people there to come to Christ. And he would say in some of the theaters that, it was in Chicago, the best thing that could happen to you, friend, is that you come to the front, repent and come to Christ, and that you walk out that door and you get killed by a tram right away because you'll go straight to heaven. I believe there's a very slight flaw in that idea, and that's quite simply that if all the world were converted and immediately knocked down by a number 27 bus, then there would be nobody left to share the gospel with the rest of the world. And I think Billy Sunday may have quite um, unfortunately overlooked that, but I think you've got the idea. Uh, and uh, as you can see from the uh, video that we showed, that the word witness is in Greek the word from which we get the word martyr. Now, that is a challenging thought, and that the expectation of witnesses in the New Testament is that what we now discover for martyr, that they may well risk death. Uh, so it's, it is a challenge. And when we read the book of Revelation, it reminds us that the triumph of the church that gets into heaven and that glorifies God there is that they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, yes, we know that, and by the word of their testimony or witness. So that is the hallmark of God's people to witness. And there is a case to be a witness. Firstly, Jesus called the disciples and said to them, you will be my witnesses. Well, they're all dead and gone, so 
To whom has the torch come down? Why? It's us. There is a calling for each one of us, if we have a believer in Christ, to be a witness. It goes a bit further, though. Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, commissioned his disciples, and that therefore includes us, to go and make disciples of all nations. There's a commission upon us. You are committed, as am I, to share this good news and make disciples, bring others to Christ. And of course, there's a commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you truly love someone, surely you must want to share with them the best news in the world that they could receive and the fact that they could be sure of eternal life themselves. And the only way to do that is to witness. And then, of course, it says that Apostle Paul said to him, said to the church, woe to me if I do not share the gospel. In other words, inside there's a compulsion to share it. Now, I realize for some people that compulsion bubbles over more rapidly like a boiling kettle than others, but it should be there because this is the case for witnessing. But how does it work? Well, the key verse that that reading finished on is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And you may wish to look it up if you want. Don't worry. There it is on the screen. But the key witness, the key theme of witnessing that Jesus left the church, and these are the last words that are recorded in the, uh, of him speaking to the disciples before ascending to heaven in the book of Acts, are that you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. It's rather like that picture of a drop hitting a puddle or a pond, that the ripples go out and should spread all the way to the very edges. And that is what falls upon us. So how did the gospel spread? How did people witness in the very first century? And the answer is this. It says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Well, that's where the apostles and disciples all were. They were all in Jerusalem. There was nobody anywhere else. They were all in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And that is where you start your witness. You start it at home. And in my case, I was 17 years old, so I told my mum and my brothers. And that's where you start. You tell the nearest and dearest to you. You share with them first. Now, they may have a few things to say back to you, but that is the start home that we must work from there. And then it says, you take it out, it says, to the next place, which is Judea. Well, just as London is the capital of England, so the Judea would be the whole country. But for us, it's the neighboring territory. You move outside the home, to your neighborhood, to your mates that you are sharing with at work, or um, for those who uh, teach in schools, those who are nurses or others in hospitals, wherever it might be that we serve our community. For us, it's this little town of Amesbury, all 12,000 or something of us. We share to the neighboring territory. But then you go a bit further, it says. It says in Acts chapter uh, 1, verse 8 again, that you shall be my witnesses in Samaria. Shock, horror. The Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Samaritans were a kind of sect that broke away from Judaism, and they said, Jerusalem isn't where you worship. No, you come to this big mountain in, in Samaria. And they had all sorts of other funny ideas. That's when it starts to get a bit hostile. Because as soon as you say that, 
they'll start coming up with solutions and uh, objections to what you're saying. That can't be true. I heard that um, you become a Christian by going to Mecca. Surely that must, and then you may find opposition. But we are called to take the good news and witness to people that we are less comfortable with. And that's not always easy. I wonder who you think you're uncomfortable with and in sharing the good news to. That is the calling. But it doesn't stop there. As Jesus said, you must go to the ends of the earth. And this little map here shows something of what happened in the New Testament church. Obviously, they all started about here. And funnily enough, the apostles got into a holy huddle. And the first eight chapters of the book of Acts show that the apostles never left Jerusalem and their immediate surroundings. They were afraid to share the gospel far up outside that. And so what God did is he dropped an atom bomb on them. Boom! Persecution. Killing James, killing others of the apostles. And sometimes that scares the church to go out. And unfortunately, that's how some people had to be kicked out. But not Apostle Paul, who managed to get much further all the way around this part of the world, indeed up to Rome itself, and he wrote of a trip to Spain. He took the gospel to people who the Jews refused to believe could believe. That's us. Gentiles, non-Jews, get it out. And that's how it spread. And you'll see how rapidly it spread across to the ends of the earth. Okay, how did Paul do it? I'm always amazed that in our modern generation, we can fly to the moon, we can send um, captains, uh, not, not Spock, what was the other one? Uh, Kirk. Um, Shatner, that was the William Shatner this week, has been up to the edge of the earth, uh, who was the captain of Star Trek, if you, as you remember those old series. Anyhow, the thing is, we can go to these great journeys, and we can send ordinary people, he's 91 years old, went up that high. Um, uh, we can send people by jet across the whole of the world, and yet we can't get the gospel out to the whole of the world. Yet Paul did it. Look how he did it. He started off here in Antioch, and he then walked down to the harbor, took a ship across, and then walked all around Cyprus, took a ship across, then walked all the way there, all the way around there. He got beaten up here, and then he got stuck in prison and uh, assaulted here. He then walked all the way back to here and took the ship home. The gospel spread at walking pace because you can't stop people unless you walk up to them. You can't fly and wave at them from the top of a jet aircraft. The gospel is person to person. It is COVID. It transmits like a virus. It is not a religion. It's a virus. It should be shared because we do it at walking pace. And that's how Paul managed it. But, of course, as we know in more modern times, uh, the gospel can be shared at tremendous rallies. Does anyone know where this building is, just out of interest? The picture of the evangelist might give it away. Who's the evangelist? Billy Graham. In 1951, he came to London to Haringey Crusade. He, sent, he, he, he set up a crusade, and about 15,000 people went every night to Haringey, and they heard the gospel. And many believe that it changed the course of English church for about the next 30 years. Hundreds upon hundreds of people came to be saved. Thousands did. 
He even got Billy Graham to speak to the Queen, and if you watch The Crown, it describes the incident in that uh, document, that it's docudrama, uh, it describes that he did speak to the Queen and some of the conversation that we think was shared. The key thing is this, that you can have gifted evangelists who can speak to great crowds and can manage to speak to so many thousands at once, and often as not, we sit back and say, come on, Billy, keep going, keep going. Well, sadly, he's gone to glory, so he's not around. There are others that follow. This chap here I know well, Roger Carswell, is a, a modern evangelist who preaches a lot or, or shares the gospel in universities and conference centers, and he's very dynamic. He also uh, shares it in open-air settings as well. And um, if you haven't tried sharing the gospel in the open air, well, it's scary, but it works. <laughs> and uh, you don't need to be on your own. You can go in a team. Indeed, this is a team on a beach. And that's where I first met Roger Carswell uh, on a beach mission and was part of that team. You can share with others. You don't have to be on your own. But the key thing is, take the opportunities and get out. But really, how should we share? What is the way that the gospel goes? How could it possibly get to the whole world? Let me show you. Here we go. One person brings another. It's as simple and as effective as that. I'm going to walk, to walk through with you how this works, and I'm going to ask you some questions to do in your head, some mathematics. So I hope you're on the edge of your seat and uh, can answer some of these questions. But let's see how it works. I want you to imagine you're the only Christian in the world. None ever has ever been heard of. You're the only one. And so, what you do is you get home and think, I need to share this. And so you get yourself a little list, and you write down the people you'd like to share it with. And you pick on one person in particular, and you pray for him or her every day, just for that one. And then you take an opportunity to go and have friendship. Well, you're probably already their friend. You start in Jerusalem. And when you get to speak to them, you start to introduce little bits and hints into the conversation and steer it, perhaps, a little bit to see if they have some interest. Well, that's your just starting. And as things warm up, you get a chance to share more and more about what's happened to you meeting Christ and how Christ has changed your life. Curiosity then leads to maybe explain how he could change their lives. And every day you pray for that person. At the end of the year, if that person has listened and responded, how many Christians would there then be in the world? Answer. I'm glad our mathematics is up to speed. Schools haven't failed us. Okay, wonderful. That's just the first year. Well, next year, how many Christians do we say there were in the world? Two. So you and your friend get together, and you both get your little lists, and you start to pray for one person each. You get a new person on your list, and they do the same. They've got a good friend, and they get a new person on their list. And occasionally you meet up, but you generally just stay apart and go and speak to that one friend, each of you, pray for them, encourage them, share your story, your testimony, your witness, and then lead them gently to find Christ for themselves. And suddenly, two plus two makes, hey, we're in the right place. Gosh, 
I'd be stunned if we couldn't get that far. At the end of year two, there are four Christians in the world. All right? Can you see where this is going? I'm sure you can. Year three. Four of you start. You pray each for one person. And so by the end of that year, if things go successfully, we now have eight. Okay. Well, you can see where it's going. Year four, the next year. Let's carry on a little bit more. Well, we've got 16 now, haven't we? If we've been successful, because you did, and it's 16. Well, that's big house group, isn't it? Uh, probably too big for most of our houses. I don't know, but there we go. And so, well, four years, we've got 16 Christians in the world. Well, let's see what would happen next year. Well, you can work the miles, I hope. It gets a bit tougher, by the way, as we go on. I'll be coming back to you. Um, by, by the end of year five, there are 32 Christians there. There are 32 people here now sitting in this congregation. Look around you. That's the effectiveness. Five years, you've got a church. And by the way, their children are also upstairs, so there's about 46, I think, today. So you get the idea, don't you? Now, I want you to apply this logic. Year six, if we take this forward, well, that will be double. That will be 64. And you can see it's still progressing. And all you're doing, and I'll take you back, all you're doing is you're praying for just one person each year. You're praying, witnessing, sharing, but you're being gentle, and you're just hoping that by Christmas, the end of the year, they'll be joining you for Christmas celebrations because Christ is in their heart as well. All right, tell me what it'll be at the end of year seven. Hey, what? 128, uh, it gets harder. <laughs> yes, that's true. And year eight? Two, five, six. And year nine? Okay, see, if those of you who know, understand computers can see the digital decimal stuff. And after year 10? You know what the key number is there? 1,000. After 10 years, you've reached the first thousand. Thousand people. I don't know the numbers of believers in Amesbury. My guess is that true believers, it probably ain't much more than a thousand. I could be wrong. Barry will correct me, I'm sure. But it's about that. Certainly if you add up the attendance in all the churches in Amesbury, it's well below 1,000 on a Sunday morning. Now, Let's take a look at how this works. If you look at the way the numbers are going, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, if you were to do this for another 10 years, by year 10 you get 1,000, the next 10 years would be 1,000 times each of those. So year 11 would be 2,000. Year 12, 4,000, roughly. By year 20, how many are we looking at? Well said, Linda, well said. Now, David, come on, give us the actual... Yeah. By year 20, you've got more believers than the entire population of Birmingham City. One million. If it's a thousand after year 10, after year 20, it'll be one million. Uh, just let me show you a few other things. That's about Birmingham population. By year 23, London, 8 million. By year 26, I think it is, yep, 
the population of the entire United Kingdom, 67 million. By year 30, 1 billion, just a bit below the population of India and China. After 10 years, remember, you will have been witnessing to one person each year. By year 10, how many people will you personally have brought to Christ in that time, assuming this works? 10, just 10. But yet we know there's a thousand out there. After year 20, how many people will you personally have led to Christ? 20. Yet there's a million out there. And by year 30, there's a billion. And how many will you personally have led to Christ? Just 30. And let me just take this a little bit further. By year 33, eight and a half billion. The current population of the world is estimated as 7.9 billion. That, brothers and sisters, is how to win the world for Christ. You have got the lot one by one, and you have only led personally 33. Jesus lived 33 years. He didn't see billions. He saw 12 and a few others. Do you see how it works? Now, the obvious question, it begs the question, is, well, why not? Why is the whole world not converted for Christ? There are many reasons, of course. Quite often, of course, it falls back to us because Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. He didn't say, I'm going to be my witness for the next 33, 60, 2,000 years. You shall do it. Who has failed? Now, in a couple of weeks, Barry will be sharing with us some of what we call the barriers to witnessing, and there are many. But of course, the chief one is no doubt that there is opposition out there, and many reject. And Jesus quite happily will let people reject. A rich young ruler came to him and said, you know, uh, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus explained, what do? You don't do anything, you just trust me. Give away everything else and come to me. That young man wanted to hang on to his money and his riches, and he walked away. And do you know what? Jesus let him walk away. That would be me. I'd be up. no, 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 mate, you don't, you don't realize. Don't do something stupid like this. No, no, come back, come back to Jesus. Jesus, it says, loved him. But he watched him walk away. God does not force his way into people's lives. I think it was David Livingston said, Christ is the perfect gentleman. He never forces anyone into the kingdom. So yes, there are reasons why not. But I wonder is the real reason that we're not listening to what the ladies, Mary, Magdalene, and others heard on the day that Jesus had risen. Inside, the two angels said, look, he's not here. He's risen like he said he would. Go quickly and tell the rest. Are we going quickly to tell the rest? We may think, well, I can't do that. Boaz had a very large field, many fields. Boaz sent his reapers into the fields. 
Boaz every year would have a massive harvest of sheaves brought in. We're not all called to be a Billy Graham or a Boaz and win millions for Christ. Although Billy Graham did preach once in Seoul in Korea, every night he preached there were half a million in the audience. God can use people like that, but we're not all Boazes. Ruth, on the other hand, she just, what did she do? She just went around the edges. She didn't even go in the main bit. She hung around the edges and picked up little sheaves, one here, one there. That is what we can do, one by one. And I think the story of this is well put by a lady called Annie Flint who points out that Christ has no hands but our hands to do his work today. Christ has no feet but our feet to lead the uh, men on his way. He has no tongues but our tongues to tell men how he died. He has no help but our help to bring men to his side. And women, I, I hastily add, we are the only Bible the careless world will read. We are the sinner's gospel. We are the scoffer's creed. We are the Lord's last message given in deed and word. What if the type is crooked? What if the print is blurred? Now, there's a question for our lives. Are they shining the way they are? They should. Anyone know what this is? You should. You've driven past it many times in your life. Tidworth House at Tidworth. It's the uh, former officer's mess in Tidworth. It was a family home of... C.T. Studd, Charles Thomas Studd, who was a very famous cricketer playing for England, and a very wealthy man indeed. But he became a Christian, and he decided that he was going to marry this young girl from Northern Ireland called Pat Stewart, which he did, and she soon sorted him out. And then he said, I believe God is calling me to give everything away and calling us to be missionaries. And sure enough, he went to China, India, and Africa, and gave his life serving as a missionary. He gave it all up. Why? He explains. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And the last verse, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Let's think, pray, and ask God for our next Lord. Amen.